the Podfix Network. Hello and welcome. This is episode 164 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie films to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up. And I just F it up. Uh, How to try not to F it up. What's the end, Dom? Uh, And something. I I don't (laughs) And something. I've listened to it many times. Me too. I've said it 164 times and I can't remember. And I think it's in our humble opinion. There it is. Something about about helping filmmakers. Something about being humble. (laughs) Giving giving advice. (laughs) Oh dear. Welcome to this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We uh, are delighted to have Niasa Hardiman as our guest this week. But first, before we talk about her and what we talk about in the episode, I want to introduce to you the voice you've already heard. He is the legend, the man that has made not only three feature films, but the fantastic Winter Ridge and produced many others, including uh, Soundtrack to 16, which is out now. It is the lovely, fantastic Dom Lenoir. Hello, buddy. Hello, hello. Do I, do I, do I need to introduce you now? I try and remember what... Hey, go on, then. Dare you. You. Oh, there. He's already said the first... First of his films, oh, yeah. got a good start. And next one, I knight yeah. you. Wait, so, let's see if you get it. Jars has the the Dare, which is a studio film with Millennium Pictures that is out in October, I believe. Um, it's out in the US and Canada now. Yes, thank you. But the UK yeah. in October. That's good. We, well done. We care about. Um, also, Knights of Camelot with some kind of suffix after a, a, a colon, um, which is also out in the UK. Love a good with colon. Signature in October. <laughs> Uh, which is a great sort of <laughs> this is a great sword and uh, and sandals kind of um, King Arthur epic. Nice. It looks pretty pretty exciting. Uh, we've we've all seen the trailers. What well, we have anyway. Yeah. Uh, so there's that and Serial Killers Guide to Life, which recently got picked up on Sky Cinema. I think it did. That's doing very very well. Yeah. Uh, Giles produced on that. So there we are. That's a fun fact. There we go. Thank you, Dom. Well done. Well done. It's good. So should we talk about uh, this week's episode with wonderful? director Niasa Hardiman she has directed Sea Fever which is out now which is me and Dom love this movie it's so cool it's so cool so Dom what do we talk about on this week's episode that our listeners can look forward to quite a lot actually uh, it's a very relevant film with the the current sort of pandemic yeah, so it's, totally. it's fascinating from that yeah we talk about how she started as well we talk about how she engaged with her creative art how she managed to get yep. arts council grants I mixed the two arts there see how clever I did that and we talk about successfully Successfully winning a BAFTA, um, which she won for Happy Valley, which is a brilliant TV series. Absolutely cool as mud. Anything else, Dom, you want to throw in? Yes, uh, her very interesting approach to very visual storytelling uh, and creating what you could argue is an interesting kind of art house spin uh, and some very cultural ideas into her work whilst keeping them very cinematic. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Very fascinating and, and enigmatic filmmaking that uh, she, she does. Absolutely. We also talk about casting, filming at sea and in a boat, uh, how she loves editing, how she got the funding and distribution as well. All that to come on this week's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast with Niesa Hardiman, uh, me, Giles Alderson and Dom Lemoir. Um So, Dom, we're very excited to tell our lovely listeners, aren't we, about the Make Your Film event. Uh, so, we're doing another one. We've already done two online summits and we're doing another one, Dom. Fill them in, go. It is on the 4th of June, 
Uh, we have amazing guests as per usual. Woo-hoo. It's basically our Make Your Film London panel gone online. Yes. Uh, and we the format's a little bit different to our London event in that we, we try and get a, a few different bodies, uh, institutions, and, and a much wider uh, set of perspectives from, from different filmmakers as well as the sort of directors and the producers and the writers. So we've got a pretty exciting kind of lineup of advice of how to develop projects and uh, what the state of the industry is at the moment. Absolutely. So do join us um, June the 4th, right? Three days before my birthday. So if anyone wanted to get me a birthday present, that would be the time to start sending it. Um, so June the 7th is the date. Uh, so, yeah, so we're June the 4th. That's my birthday event. June the 4th is uh, our Make a Film event, the third online one. And our first guest to announce, Dom, go for it. Who is our first announced guest? Though, to it be is honest, well, Dan. Well, I've just realised, but people will know this by now because. We, we're going to announce this on Monday, but they might. They might not. Oh, the they listeners might. They might, be, might. they might be in a vacuum of link sent by someone. Yeah, that's true. They might be hearing this just on the the, the podcast on a, whim. on a whim. Yeah, welcome. Thank you for listening, Dom. Who's our first announced guest? It is the very multi-talented uh, screenwriter, producer, and director Dan Mazer. Oh yes, you may is. know from Borat. Yes, or you may know from Bruno. Or, or many more. Uh, I was going to keep. I thought you were going to keep going. So Ali G, uh, he he was one of the creators, directors of that too. Dirty Grandpa. I give it a year. He wrote Bridget Jones's Baby. Uh, he also wrote Office Christmas Party, and he uh, he is directing right now the Home Alone reboot. Pretty big stuff. Pretty, pretty big stuff. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Oh yeah, so that is to come June the fourth. Uh, you can get the link should be out now. Oh, damn, if we haven't got a link by now, then we're foolish. So yeah, there's a link uh, that'll be in the show notes. Go check it out and join us. All you got to do is sit there. And more guests to announce very, very soon. Super excited, right, Dom? Shall we get to this week's episode? Why not? Let's sail away with the fantastic Niasa Hardiman. Dom, your puns are the best in the world. We talk about her brand new film Sea Fever and so much else. Sit back, relax. And enjoy. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Have we got Dom? Has Dom joined us? Yes, I'm here. Hello. Great. Hey, Dom. How are you? Nyasa here. Yeah, how are you doing? Do you know what? I am doing fine. How are you guys? How are you handling the lockdown? Sort of surviving. Uh, yeah, <laughs> lots, of, uh, lots of sort of at-home tutorials and lessons and, oh, and learning yeah, and, and writing. Too. Are you doing? Are you teaching your children Latin, Latin and ancient Greek every morning for four hours? <laughs> I'd love it if Dom had kids. I would love it if Dom had kids. <laughs> yeah. His life would be so different than what it is right now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty much the opposite of that. No, I've, I've been spending a few hours in the um, the master classes every morning. Um, oh, I see. Not teaching, uh, but learning. Even better. Yeah, exactly. That's surely better, isn't it? Surely, Surely learning is better than teaching. I don't know. I don't know. What about yourself, Niasa? So I'll get it correct. It's Niasa. It's actually right. Niasa. 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 Yeah, what a it's great, an Irish word, name. and it means cannot be defeated. Oh wow! Woo-hoo. I know Very that's good. pretty cool, right? Not actually yeah. true, but you know, nice but, to have the PR. Have you been? Have you been defeated on many occasions? <laughs> many, 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 and various. Yeah. <laughs> No good in armed or unarmed combat. (laughs) Especially by Monsters of the Sea. Um, And what a fantastic movie. My gosh. That's really kind of you. Wow. It's 
beautiful and fantastic and the tension keeps upping and upping. We are talking about sea fever, by the way. As you know this because it'll be in the heading of the actual episode. But oh my gosh, what a great movie. Well done. Well, thank you very much. I am delighted that it worked for you. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to that. We obviously want to talk about that in detail. But what we like to do on the Filmmakers Podcast, because we're all filmmakers and people who listen are filmmakers, it's, it's how we get there. Because a lot of people, it's overcoming those little hurdles of, mm-hmm. and the massive hurdles and the huge ones yes, and the indeed. giant waves that come and crush your boat. Hurdles of all sizes. Yeah. <laughs> they capsize you constantly. So that's what we like to talk about is how you get there in the process and, you know, finding money, finding scripts, finding actors, working with all those things. So we like to, to delve deep and ask, you know, how it started for you. And we sort of know you made documentaries and, you know, you, you started in graphic design, which is really interesting. Interesting, I think, yeah. to, to sort of your creativity and your juices. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, gosh, well, it was circuitous and I don't recommend it. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I was always really interested in writing. I was interested in uh, maths and physics. I was interested in art. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to find something where I could explore all of those interests, which is really hard. Because, of mm. course, everybody, as soon as you leave school, everybody asks you to specialize. Uh, and so I got a place in physics and I got a place in German and I got a place in visual art. And I thought, do you know what? I kind of know what physics is and I know what German is. And I'm a big reader and I'm going to do that myself anyway. And I know how to write and I know what creative writing is. But visual art is the kind of thing where if you don't engage with it early and immerse yourself, uh, that level of subtlety and skill is really hard to build up later. So I thought if I do visual art, I can encompass all of the other things that that appeal to me and that I'm fascinated by. And I can explore all of those through that. Wow. I love that. I look, How old were you? How old were you when you made that 17, decision? Because, 17. Oh, my God. Wow. I was just a child. <laughs> but yet you were a child with so much knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> By which you mean a very boring child. <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's very interesting as as well that you sort of mentioned that the marrying of of arts with the kind of the logical and, and the science and the maths because I, I think a lot of people which outside the industry maybe you know part yeah I think part of of the joy of filmmaking is it's it's the original kind of Gesamtkunstwerk, isn't it? It's it's this gorgeous amalgam. Of uh, of storytelling, which combines ideas and uh, and emotions and performance, uh, and it's also uh, a visual medium where you can make incredibly evocative and interesting and transgressive and strange and new images. It's a soundscape. You can use music, and it's also a technical innovation and about understanding that technology that you're using, whether it be broadcast technology or you know recorded. You know, you see filmmakers fall in love with that as well. Mm. Uh, and fall in love with the uh, with that aspect of the process, um, and I I really get that, and I think that's one of the reasons why why we do it is because uh, it's it's stimulating across a whole range of different modes of thinking. You're so right; it really does, and I think we we can get bogged down in the sort of a business we need to know about the business we can get bogged down in so much stuff but you're so right it's this we do it because the creativity in us and this passion and this feeling that we really want to not only tell stories but we believe in maybe changing the world and it sounds silly and small but actually it, it, it feels it's that huge. way sometimes yeah when i when i was a girl i so i started out uh, and as you say i i did my primary degree communication which was uh, photography graphic design print design and uh, and film and video and out of that i was 
scholarship to go to Berlin. And I did a postgrad in Berlin in uh, film and video sculpture. Um, mm. So that was um, uh, an artist called Rebecca Horn and another artist called Valley Export who were, who were doing these projects over there. And that was an amazing experience and really eye-opening. And I became really interested in the moving image and, and in the, the flexibility and uh, mutability of the moving image there. And I was invited back to Ireland then to work with the public broadcaster as a, a graphic designer. So I did title sequences and animations and um, eye dance for the, the, the television. And I, I, I designed the corporate logo, Ortiz corporate logo. Um, and that was yeah. really interesting. And then after about two years, suddenly it was really boring. Um, because it was just, it was pure aesthetics. It was, you know, let's innovate aesthetically. Let's make um, images that are exciting and different. And I learned a huge amount about directing um, from an aesthetic perspective and about, uh, you know, being transgressive and, and being innovative and all that stuff. But uh, after two years, it was like the, the lack of content here is just, it's like having a diet of pure sugar. It's not satisfying. Um, so the, the broadcaster had a program whereby, I think the BBC does the same, whereby they uh, they run a competition every five years and they train 10 new producer directors. So I did that. And that was brilliant. How did you approach even getting into those schemes? Because like those, those schemes, you know, they're a lot of people apply. And people with a visual background. They're not. They're designed for people with a journalistic background. I did have to think really carefully, how am I going to show what I can do so that I will be considered? Because obviously they're very sought after. Um, so I, uh, I thought about programs. I thought about what's, what's not on air that I would really like to see on air that will be interesting and exciting for me as a viewer. So I made a, a whole load of, you know, ridiculously kind of esoteric programs <laughs> that would never see the light of day, but that were really exciting to me, you know, completely unfilmable and, and none of them ever took off, but <laughs> they were enough for the, uh, for the broadcaster to go, okay, no, she does have, she does understand narrative and she does understand, uh, you know, how to put, how to, to, uh, inject content into the aesthetic capability that we see she has. So that was lucky for me. Um, and that started me on a kind of journey into storytelling um, that that matched. I'd always been a big reader and a big reader of fiction. And uh, and it, it matched my my passion uh, about writing and reading. Um, and, uh, it you know, it was it was RTE in the 90s. So there was um, there was was very little money for drama like it was Ireland you know the the film industry was absolutely at its baby stages and yeah. um, there was a, there was a filmmaker in the west of Ireland who used to say there's no such thing as the film industry in Ireland there's only about five people who have a really expensive hobby <laughs> and that's fascinating because it's it's how do you get in how do you how get do in you, how do you yeah. get in I'm living how in this you know three at the time I think it was four million people on a tiny island off the west coast of Europe with no film industry and no opportunity. Mm. So uh, and do? I had to earn a living, you know, I don't come for money. So it was really important for me to earn a living, but I wanted to earn a living doing something that was going to help me uh, learn and uh, and grow and change a bit like you, you know, you take mm. every opportunity that you can to learn, right? Mm. So, um, so I started making documentaries and I learned a load of things about storytelling through making documentaries. I think it's Hitchcock who says, in documentary, God is the director. And then you get mm. into drama and the director is God. <laughs> <laughs> so I moved into drama. Orti were doing one drama, and I became the youngest director to to direct that drama, which is incredible. But how did it? Happen? I worked then on this um, serial drama, which is the only drama being made in Ireland at that time, and I did that. <laughs> I did that for a year, and the first three months, it was absolutely compelling. Uh, it was the first time I'd really worked with actors, and I just fell in love with that. Oh yeah, of course. Was that, that Fair City? Okay, this is it. This yeah yeah yeah. yeah. 
And the actors were so generous and so committed and so into it. And it was so thrilling. And so for the first three months, I was like, I was like walking up a really steep, steep hill. I was learning, learning, learning. Every day I was learning. Every day it was something new. And then the second three months, I felt like, oh, I, I think I know how to do this. I think this is, this is going to be okay. Um, and the thing that it taught me, which was really valuable for me, was I had all these kind of uh, visual tricks and, and I was very confident about my abilities as a visual director uh, and as a kind of formal director in, in terms of form, if you know what I mean, you know, mm. picture and sound. I knew I was good at that and I knew I was really strong in that area. Um, and with Fair City, because it's pure storytelling, you can't be tricksy with the camera. You can't be, you can't use the camera as an expressive storytelling device. The camera is there to do really classical storytelling work. So everything has to be about performance. And so it kind of threw me into another way of focusing on storytelling, if that makes what, sense. What, what challenges did you have in terms of moving into like really working with sort of actors? Um, and what, what did you learn about the process of sort of talking to them from, from moving from documentaries? Oh, God, it was just amazing. It was amazing. First of all, that they're with you. You know, in a documentary, you're always kind of, um, you're in a different world to the world of the person that you're talking to always. Whereas in drama, everybody is with you. You're all in the same world and you're all trying to do the same thing. And so you really feel the wind at your back going, we all want to produce the same thing. And that's wonderful. Um, and then you're working with people whose stock in trade is to try and make something grounded and truthful and to try and support the story. So that's really exciting. And, and in terms of working with the actors, it, it gave me, um, first of all, they were really generous to me, I have to say, because they're all professional actors and a lot of them were really experienced theatre actors mm. who would you know, spend a season working uh, in a TV drama and the rest of the time they were working in the National Theatre. So they were incredibly strong people. So I worked with one woman who'd worked with Grotowski. Wow. Um, and uh, she was just brilliant. And she'd tell me all these stories that, that still inform my practice to this day, saying, you know, Grotowski used to say to us, the way you go into the scene is you learn the, you learn the lines off by heart with no inflection. And then you walk on stage and you close your eyes and you fall backwards and let what happens happen. And, you know, it's that kind of learning that you get from people who are just really good at their craft. Like I was in my 20s and these were actors in their 50s, 60s, 70s who had had a lifetime of uh, of honing their craft and were kind enough to share that with me. That was where I felt like I could do this for my whole life and I will be learning every day. This is what I want to do. This is absolutely 100% what I want to do. Amazing. So at that point, I stopped working with RTE because, you know, it was clear that it was never going to be a possibility with them. Mm. And I started to look internationally and um, I made... Uh, I made a short film that was funded by Screen Ireland, um, which was the nascent um, film board that was established in the country around that time. Right. Um, and that was a brilliant opportunity. And I think I was only the second woman they'd ever funded. Wow. That's and great. Because getting funding for films is very hard. Was that Olive, by the way? Was that? Yes. yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because yeah. getting funding for uh, anything. I mean, I don't know how many times you've applied, Don, but I've applied many times for funding and never. It's a painful process. And never received <laughs> anything. Um, <laughs> was it because, like you say, you were the one of the youngest. Was that, uh, was it an easy pitch? What did you do to pitch to get your short made? Because people love to get funding from, um, from any of these sources. Uh, God, what did I say? I, I think, do you know what? I was also, I was really encouraged by, um, I come from a big family and one of my sisters um, 
as a, a research neurologist, she's she's actually now clinical lead in neurology in Ireland. Wow. But but at the time, she was a research neurologist, and um, and it was my sister who said to me, so um, the thing about uh, applying for grads is um, you, you have to be able to wallpaper your bedroom with the number of grant applications that you have made <laughs> <laughs> before you get. In other words. Yeah. Just keep going. Don't stop. Don't be disheartened. And also don't pin your hopes on one thing. Yeah. Because exactly as you say, you know, the odds of, of you're getting any one particular grant are, are never going to be brilliant. Mm. But if you apply for, for 10 different things and you're pushing every available door, one of the doors will open for you. Uh, so that was a really valuable piece of advice for somebody that, that was already quite successful. I'm kind of pushing her way in um, to go, OK, this is his. You just just keep going. And then. Um, and I see that, you know, in young filmmakers going, well, I've applied for the grant, so now I wait. No. <laughs> <laughs> Never wait. <laughs> Never wait. Never wait. You apply for the grant, find another grant to apply for. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So yeah, from so from there, so that was Olive, which did really well. Did you Were you now already pushing on the doors f- to make, you know, the Scott and Baileys that you started to make and things like that? Were you already in the mix for shows like that, these TV shows, British TV um, shows? I was lucky. I, I knew I had, to, I had to spread my wings internationally because there was really nothing going on in Ireland. Right. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so I was lucky enough uh, that there was an agent who saw Olive and liked it, um, uh, uh, a woman called Frances, who I'm still with, uh, who's a fantastic friend and has been uh, has been with me for the last, God, 15 years. Um, and so she decided she was going to represent me, and that was really helpful. Uh, so that kind of uh, allowed me to have an entree into some of the producers in London. Uh, and at the time, London had an industry you know, not a great film industry, but there was drama. There was drama going on. So mm. it was possible to uh, to find a way in. So, yeah, I ended up doing Scott and Bailey, uh, which was terrific. And I really, really loved it. And I loved working with them, um, with Nicola Schindler, who's a fantastic producer and the best script editor I've ever come across. She's just so sharp on wow. script uh, and now working, obviously, with um, Studio Canal. Yes. Uh, and that was how I met Sally Wainwright. Um, and I ended up working with her directing Happy Valley, which was terrific. Oh, of course it was. And that's where you won the BAFTA, which is... And then I won a BAFTA. Yeah, just, just, yes. then, then I just won a BAFTA. <laughs> Were you involved in setting up the show in any way or did you just come in and, and direct it at points? Um, Sally is an extraordinary writer. She's extraordinary. So she had the eight hours. Uh, she had the scripts for... Uh, sorry, six hours. She had the scripts for all six hours written. And um, and she sent them to me. And, you know, Sally has, I don't know how many bloody drafts she has. Loads yeah, she of doesn't need any more. Um, She's like, you, and, you uh, have one. And I have, <laughs> have uh, thoughts. And so Nicola, who's producing, said to me, OK, we're going to fly you over to Manchester and you can sit down and we'll we'll discuss, you know, your thoughts and the story. Uh, and I thought, that'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I'll sit down with Nicola Schindler, uh, Schindler, who is like the preeminent producer of her generation and Sally Wainwright, the greatest writer of her generation. And I'll just, I'll give them my notes. And that would be fine. Oh my gosh, she must have been thinking, hang on, what am I doing? I'm giving them notes with all their batters, but... It was a little bit trepidatious, but I thought, as as I'm sure you guys have been in this position too, I thought, okay, well, I have to be honest. Mm -hmm. I have to be absolutely, completely honest and completely authentic on myself because either they want to work with me or they don't. And if they don't, it's better that they know who I am now. Um, and if they don't like my aesthetic take or the, or the, the way that I'm leaning, I, I need to know, they need to know that now and I need to know that now, or this could get really messy. Yeah. So 
I, you know, went into the meeting and uh, we spent a couple of hours talking and it was absolutely brilliant. And of course, Sally, like any uh, brilliant artist and professional, uh, is totally open and totally flexible about uh, about her creative work because she's really creatively confident. And that's a very, very good point about collaboration as well. And, you know, I've heard it echoed before as well from, from people that have like very good collaborations with each other. And it's it's not about being um, sensitive, you know, either giving or taking notes as you as you say if you're going into these relationships you know potentially for for some time on a, on a show or, or a film you need to be able to have a, a level of honesty with the creativity don't you i think 100 percent. if you're going to make good work it has to be yours and you have to really believe in it and more broadly you know i know from from experience and i'm sure you guys do as well they're you know the people that you want to work with uh, as a writer and as a director are the people where you put all the ideas on the table and everybody looks at the ideas and goes, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And then you pick the best ones and mm. everybody's trying to make the best work and you leave your ego at the door. It's um, at that old adage, the true professional has no pride. We all <laughs> want to make the best work. And if you're not able to overcome your own ego about, well, this is my idea. Or if you're not able, if you're too frightened to unpick uh, your own work because you don't think you'll have a good idea it's not going to work for you um as a as a filmmaker as a dramatist you absolutely have to be open to collaborate and you have to understand um you know as a as a writer director it's really important when when people give you notes you know sometimes they give you notes and you go oh no sorry no you just didn't understand what i was trying to get in mm, there absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's a part of you going, yeah, no, you just didn't understand. And actually, you know, it's really important to overcome that and overcome, because that's ego, mm -hmm. right? That's your own ego. Uh, and you have to overcome that going, they did not understand. That's my fault. They didn't understand. You've got to change that because they didn't understand it. I, I think there's a there's a common misconception that, you know, with, with directing that you have to come up with all the ideas yourself. Um, and what, what you said there is kind of quite fascinating because, you know, I think it's it's not that. It's about having collective ideas and everyone being able to sort of jump in uh, and it's, it's your decision to, to see whether it fits the overall story rather than I've come up with the idea this is my idea yeah I think you're absolutely right I, I, I the way I think of it is as the director your job is to be the curator you're the curator of ideas yeah. and like any curator some of those ideas are going to be yours and the overall thrust and theme and tone and mood and aesthetic sensibility is going to be yours but you're communicating that so that you can curate the ideas that come back to you and you pick the best ones and you incorporate them. Um, and just coming back to that idea of notes, you know, there will be times when people give you notes that are just wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's that point where you are the curator of ideas where you go, that's outside the scope. For, so, for instance, on Sea Fever, uh, when I was um, developing the script and I knew I wanted the central figure to be... Um, an outsider who really struggles to connect. And one of the producers said to me, well, you know, you could make her the only woman on the boat. And then that way she's an outsider from the get-go and that's a tricky situation. Mm. And I thought, that's and the what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and interestingly, she, become, she becomes a, an outsider by being a redhead as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but it, was, it was one of those moments where somebody gives you a note and you go, no, that's actually diametrically and completely wrong and not at all what this film is. So you kind of have to know what your project is as well so that you can assess when are the notes that you're being given about things yeah. that, that, you know, you genuinely need to think about and you just, you know, you were kind of skipping over them in your script going, I hope nobody notices that's not very good. And, uh, and sometimes there's things that you love in your script, but everybody goes, nah. 
And you have to think about that really carefully. And sometimes you're getting notes that are about a version of the story that your producer wants, but you don't believe in. And you have to just stand firm on that going, that's not yeah. what we're doing here. Yeah. Your hero doesn't even have to be, you know, likable necessarily at the start to 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 be someone. Oh, hundred percent. And I really, I really wanted to have a, quite a dislikable hero because I, I, I know myself as a viewer. What I want to know always is I want to understand. I want to understand why somebody is doing something. So let's just talk about script writing then, because writing something like and you wrote it yourself as far as i can tell um <laughs> which i mean i don't mean that as in you wrote it yourself i mean like often other people come in and help or i like writing with other people basically i much prefer it um how did you come up with the concept the story uh, of this because it is fascinating it is different it is unusual sea fever is just it's really cool movie but how did you come up with this concept well that's really kind of you to say and thank you first of all for those people who are listening who are not bothered to actually watch the film i'm just going to tell you what it is it's please <laughs> they will though you have to watch it it's, it's a psychological thriller with a sci-fi element and it's set on a boat and it's um it's the story of a marine biology student who's this figure siobhan that we were just talking about and she prefers to spend her time alone in the lab because She's got a cognitive difference. She's what might previously have been referred to as an Asperger uh, uh, person. Um, so she's on the autism spectrum, um, but she's fully functional. She's living her life. It's, um, it's not an issue for her in that she has found uh, uh, something that she loves, which is marine biology. She works in a lab. We meet her in this glass box. She's on her own. This is how she lives. And for her doctorate, she has to go and endure a week. She's in the middle of doing her doctorate and she has to go and do a research week on this ragged fishing trawler. And she's kind of miserably at odds with the close-knit crew. And then out in the deep Atlantic, they find this kind of deep, unfathomable life form, which is rooted in, in real life forms. And uh, it ensnares the boat briefly and the crew starts succumbing to a strange infection. So she has to kind of overcome her alienation and her anxiety and try to win the crew's trust because she's she's the only one really who might be able to navigate them home. So it's a story about facing kind of ethical and scientific and emotional challenges uh, through the medium of this kind of um, propulsive thriller narrative. You are the scientist, I hear. I am Jared the Skipper. This is Freya. The real boss. What is your work while you're on board? I identify and extrapolate patterns from variations in deep sea behavior. I need to photograph your catch. <laughs> yes! We're on a roll! <laughs> Something's wrong. through the boat. That's inside the boat. It went into the water. We're all vulnerable to get infected. I can't see. I want you to test all of us. Those things will spread really fast. We need to quarantine ourselves. We're making port tonight. But you don't understand. Can you not hear me? Forsake
it's a really, it's one of these, like I say, tense, heart-pounding thrillers that just grows and grows, and you can't take your eyes away. You're like, what is this thing? What is this parasite? So you mentioned there that it was based on truth. It was based on something that you'd read about, that you believed in. Is that where the story came from, or did you want to make a... A film on a boat because I would be like a mad person. I was going to say, why would you want a film on a boat? With not enough money. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about that. Let's first of all, the idea. Let's go with that. Why this idea? Why did you want to make this brilliant horror sci-fi called Sea Fever? I guess, you know, everybody comes at their stories in a different way. I remember seeing an interview with Kelly Curry um, who said, uh, you know, people ask me about how I write screenplays. And the answer is, it's almost impossible for me to write screenplays. <laughs> which I thought was a great answer for an Oscar <laughs> screenwriter. Too. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, everybody comes at this in a different way. And I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. Um, personally, I, I always tend to come up with something really abstract, which is a stupid way to get into a story. But, um, but I always start with something really abstract. So at a really big level, I thought... Okay, I, I want to use the language of cinema to explore ideas. So I want a story that has that's rooted in something really truthful, that touches on ideas that are difficult culturally, um, that that has a kind of you know socio-cultural political element. Um, but I I don't want to make something that will play to two hundred people in an art mm-hmm. cinema. That's <laughs> yeah. all. I want to use the language of cinema. I want to use imagery. I want to use sound. I want to use the fact that cinema can conjure magical, dreamlike metaphors. And I want I want my real, authentic, grounded, truthful characters to be plunged unexpectedly into a kind of a dreamlike experience. So um, I was th- I actually was thinking at the very beginning about Neil Jordan, because Neil Jordan was a big influence on me when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, and using the kind of an intrinsic language of cinema to tell the story. I remember years ago seeing Adam McGoyan and give a talk at BAFTA, mm. and he said um, there are kind of there are two kinds of filmmakers. He said there are filmmakers who are in the tradition of genre and mm-hmm. where uh, the uh, the camera is um, the camera is kind of a bystander, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to conjure what looks like unmediated reality. They're trying to to get you to pretend that you're in the real world with these people, um, and the camera just happened to be there. And that's sort of, you know, Noah Baumbach, mm, that kind of cinema. Absolutely. A second kind of filmmaker uh, who he said is in the in the tradition of Fritz Lang, where uh, they want to tell you resonant, truthful, authentic, emotional stories about the real world. But they want to do it by building a parallel world that is a world of metaphor, which is a kind of middle Europa idea. Um, and that's what I felt Neil Jordan was doing, what Fritz Lang does, what people like Park Chan-wook do or Bong Joon-ho um, you know, this idea that you can tell a grown-up story um, and you can tell stories about rich, conflicted, real, grounded people in the real world and you drop in one kind of Brechtian element, one element that is this metaphor um, that turns the thing into a what-if story. And then you you articulate a kind of a, a political or a cultural truth through that. So uh, that was the sort of abstract thing that I was going, this is the area that I want to be in. I want to be in this area. I want to be in the, in, in the Fritz Lang area. You did definitely create something that, that, you know, as you said, has an art house edge. And, and I think, you know, some people think, oh, I've, I've got to make an art house. It's got to be non-cinematic. But actually, like what, what you've done is you've used some very beautiful sort of images of, you know, light, um, you know, sort of UV fluorescence, some of the creatures of, of the deep and 
you know, the, the whole setting of nature to create something that's actually very evocative and kind of beautiful, but also kind of adds a, a level of foreboding and uh, intrigue and mystery that just having sort of, you know, jump scares uh, on, on the confinement of the boat would have been much less subtle. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of jump scares. And, no. and we've been really careful about how we market the film because it's not really a horror film in that sense, no. you know. And, uh, and actually the American distributor has said to me, this is a psychological thriller and we're going to market it as a psychological thriller because it's not a horror film. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have that roller coaster quality that horror films have. It's not that. It's more sort of, you know, in the traditional uh, Polanski, that kind of thing, rather than, um, I don't know, John Carpenter or, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not making judgments about either of those directors. They're both amazing directors, mm -hmm. but it's, it's, it's what is the kind of film that you're trying to make? Um, and I think it's more kind of, it's really slow burn and it doesn't have jump scares. It's more about dread, the uncanny. And, and it poses some incredibly, I mean, you probably, I, I guess you couldn't have foreseen the sort of the current pandemic when, when you're in the early stages of, of the film. But the, the kind of central question that sort of comes later in the film, and I won't sort of go too much into spoilers, but basically whether they should remain sort of on their own or whether they should risk, you know, infecting other people or passing yeah. on the, you know, the, the creature it is basically at the, the absolute core of kind of the current situation. With, I know, with, right? With it's lockdown. Weird. Yeah. And, it, and it's, <laughs> I think it's very fascinating that it's, it's come at this time. Um, and yeah, so that, close. that was a really unfortunate coincidence. I mean, I, I <laughs> wish it weren't so, mm -hmm. so current, obviously. But, uh, you know, people have said to me, oh, oh it's, uh, it's just a pure coincidence that your story is dealing with, the, um, with this clash. Uh, and I, I think to myself, it's not entirely a coincidence. Obviously, the pandemic is a total coincidence and mm. awful for all of us. But, um, but the, the roots of the story are actually, you know, the story, well, you've seen it. So mm. the story is, um, it's, it's actually... A, it explores this idea of how people who are in raw economic need have to work against their own interests. The story is really about, if you were to say, what's, what's, the, what's the kind of um, the floorboards on which the story is built? It's built on this question of the value of reason and the scientific method in balance with the value of ma magical thinking. Right. So there's a kind of what I wanted to get at was, um, you know, in terms of global warming, somehow. The value of reason and the scientific method uh, gets undercut by a kind of magical. And the thing that frightened me about that was, you know, we're all filmmakers. We make culture. We make culture. Mm -hmm. Like the number of people that have said to you or said to me, uh, you know, oh, I saw this character and it made me change the way I thought about this particular subject or it made me decide I wanted to be something. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they'll quote a line from a film that they use as as words to live by. Like, we make culture. And what we say with our films is incredibly important. I remember when I was making documentaries, I interviewed Ken Loach. And um, I was like 22 or something. I didn't wow. know which way it was. But um, <laughs> he said, uh, I said to him, how do you feel when people characterize you? Because his films are so emotional. How do you feel when people characterize you as a political filmmaker? And he said, every film is political. There's mm. no such thing as a non-political filmmaker. And at the time, because it's so long ago, he went, what, you think Die Hard isn't a political film? Die Hard is an incredibly right-wing vigilante film. <laughs> <laughs> Should we like Christmas or not, basically? <laughs> <laughs> but he's right. You know, every story has meaning, and meaning is always political. Yes. Um, so what I wanted to do was look at why is it that there are so many films, and it's a big undercurrent in Western thinking, I think, 
where um, the sci- scientific expertise is depicted as unsympathetic or devoid of emotion or lacking in ethical insight. And I was thinking about it, thinking it kind of started with Frankenstein, you know, this fear of the irresponsible scientist and um, this fear of science as somehow troubling or negative or a, a, a malign force in our lives. And what I wanted to do was say, OK, let's let's make a hero scientist. Let's mm-hmm. show what scientists really what it is really to be a scientist. She's the most ethical person in the story. You know, and, and I wanted to also I wanted to kind of disinter that terrible Horio film cliche of the scientist as being a little bit asocial sure. going. Well, is that rooted in people who are neurodivergent? Is it rooted in people who are just as emotional as everybody else, but struggle a little bit with them, with them conversational subtext? Yes. So I wanted to show her as, you know, it looks at the beginning, I hope, like she's inhabiting a kind of cinematic cliche. And then you reframe her going, no, mm. she has a, a, a different cognitive style. And she yearns, just like you and I yearn for friendship and love and affection, but she doesn't know how to get it. She doesn't have that kind of dog whistle sensitivity that we have that neurotypical people have of what the subtext is that's being spoken about and how to crack jokes and make connections with people um and that leaves her very vulnerable and it leaves her being an outsider the people on the boat start to sort of accept her for who she is and she does become a part of the community because they get to know her Um, and at the same time i have another scientist in the story who's not neurodivergent who's like incredibly warm and funny and connected and also a really good scientist because you know (laughs) that happens too (laughs) <laughs> of course it does. And I think it's really great that you showed all those sides to the characters. And there's some brilliantly depth characters that you've written. Did you write it on spec? Was it you saying, I'm just going to, I like this story. I'm just going to go write it and see if I can get it made. No, I didn't. No, I had a friend um, who was an independent producer and he set up a company with his, with his friend and they wanted specifically to make uh, horror thrillers. Ah. It's a company called Fantastic Films in Ireland. Great. So he said to me, will you write us? Will you please write us uh, a horror thriller? So I wrote a film that's not really properly a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> but it's brilliant, which I suppose they all, at the end of the day, that's all they care about. You know, it's of course they want to go down a route, but as long as they get delivered something that is really great, it's fine, isn't oh, well, it? Well, they were brilliant. Yeah. They were absolutely brilliant. They were really helpful from the get-go and they were incredibly open and uh, uh you know, as long as the story worked, they, you know, they were never going, what about the jump scares? They never really did that. They went, it's got to be what you want it to be. That's exactly right. But at the same time, I wanted it to work for them, obviously. You know? of, co- well, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was it an easy write for you? Because this, you know, it's got a lot of tension. You're building constantly. You, you created the world so well. How did you do that? What's your process as a screenwriter? Um, again, I guess everybody is different. I mean, I, I love writing dialogue, so I like to kind of leave that until the very end. Um, and uh, what I did was I did that thing of working out a beat sheet. Um, mm. So I divided it yeah. into eight sequences and I, I had a beat sheet for each sequence and I was trying to build the tension through that. So you go, OK, well, in this part of the story, they're going to try and electrocute the boat. And by the end of that sequence, it, it will it will work or it won't work and we'll find that out um, and try to yes. get that to leave. So I had like a two page document that was the whole story just in really short sentences um, as each individual story beat. Um, and then uh, once I had that kind of locked in, then I started writing the script. Right. OK. And you like you love writing dialogue, I imagine. I imagine it's something that comes very easy to you. It seems that I way. I did enjoy it. I do really love writing dialogue. Yeah, it is kind of the fun part, isn't it? Where you're giving voices mm. to your characters and trying to um, 
trying to make them yeah truthful Real. And, yeah exactly yes yeah and what about the action then some of that stuff because it's hard to write action you know they fall off the boat or like you say the electrocute and the creature comes up how do you splush yes splush <laughs> bang boom <laughs> How do you well, write that? Well, it was helpful because because I was going to direct it. So uh, you know, in in those terms, it it's slightly easier than if you're a screenwriter and you're trying to convey to the director exactly what it is. Um, sure. So all I had to do was kind of describe r- roughly what it what I saw, and um, and then I knew I was going to be translating it. So I knew it, you know, and and that's you know, I would be quite confident as a visual director, and I'd done a lot of stunts and I'd done a lot of them. Um, of effects work. So um, I was quite clear about how I was going to make that work. And those sequences, because we had absolutely no money. So those sequences were shot really, really wildly out of order. You know, the, the last part of the film is, um, uh, it's it's got a kind of epic quality because the boat goes on fire and all kinds of things happen. Yeah. Uh, and there's a scene that we shot, uh, part of it live on the Atlantic Ocean, Wow. Um, part of it uh, on green screen in a studio in Dublin several weeks later. Uh, part of it um, in a tank in Sweden several weeks after that. Love it. And then part of it uh, against a blue screen in uh, in our clothes several weeks after that. So it was um, that was really complicated and uh, and it was useful that I I you know because I I directed Jessica Jones and I worked mm-hmm. with Marvel and uh, and I'd done kind of bigger budget things um, over in the US so. That was useful because I was very, I was very sure of my footing and all that stuff. And I, and I have worked uh, a lot with CG and with effects and with stunts before. So that, that was kind of relatively straightforward for me. Wow. That's amazing because I think that, that, uh, a lot of filmmakers, especially starting out, they go, well, I think this will work, but we're not sure. But having that behind you must have been really useful so that you could plan meticulously. Now, do you do that? I mean, you didn't have to do that, but did you, do you storyboard sort of the bigger action sequences? Do you, uh, I would recommend everybody. Yeah. Because, um, I, when I was starting out, um, the brilliant and eminent filmmaker, John, Borman was very mm. kind to me a couple of times and gave me advice. And one of the most important pieces of advice he gave me, I will now share with you, which is always know the budget because you will be blamed. <laughs> That's so true. You think someone else will be blamed for it, but they don't. Yeah. You get blamed. It's You're always like, well, the director's fault. Always. Yes. Yeah. So it's really, really important. And, and sometimes the producers are kind of unwilling out of either a desire to sort of keep you in your creative zone and not get you worried about it. But actually... Your creative zone is about how do we concretely make this happen? So you have to be across the budget. You have to know. Um, so mm. I meticulously storyboarded every single moment of all of those scenes so that everybody knew exactly what was involved in making them complete and perfect. And, you know, and we were able to budget them on that basis. So I made the storyboards and beside each board, there'd be, you know, besides each image, there'd be, uh, you know, a description of the action, but also um, this is a combination of uh, this image is constructed in the water tank. It will have green screen and it will have puppetry. We had live puppetry and it will have CG elements so that the producers could look at every single shot and know exactly what they needed to cost in every single shot. Um, And then it just makes it much easier for everybody. And then before you ever shoot a frame, uh, you know, the producers can come to you going, we can't do this. And then you go, OK, well, I really want to keep that bit. So, for instance, you know, I, I had um, I had 15, I, had, I think 18 minutes of green screen. Uh, and uh, 
they came back to me going, we can't afford it. We can't afford to shoot the script because it's 18 minutes green screen. So I went to the CG company and went, this is how much money we have. How many minutes green screen can I have? And they went 15. Oh, great. Okay. So you go back to the script and you go, well, these are the bits we really need. I can cut this scene. I can move this scene. So it's not a green screen element. And you get to 15 minutes. And, and that's, you know, that's the director and the writer taking responsibility for the budget. But actually what you're trying to do is, um, is maximize the impact on screen of your teeny weeny budget. There was another thing I learned from Walter Salas, which I think is really worth considering when you're making a low budget film that you want to have a visual impact, which is, um, I remember, do you remember a film called um, Central Station? Yes. Uh, and it's an absolutely beautiful film about an older woman who brings this very young boy from the, the big city in Brazil to this really rural home. Um, and it was made for very little money. And it's really cinematic. And when and I watched it again uh, about five years ago, and I thought, oh, my God, what a brilliant director. Because he takes the moments that are the most emotionally resonant uh, of the relationship between the old woman and the little boy. And that's where he spends the money on these really cinematic images. And it was a really good lesson as a director going, you know, if you've got a link scene, just take the the CG out of it, take the green screen out of it, set it somewhere else, save it for the moments where the audience are going to feel something and give them a big cinematic image at that moment and they'll remember it and it will resonate and it will have power. So, um, yeah, that was what I tried to do. And on that note, uh, you're, you're obviously you're very, very much focused on creating these amazing images. Like what, what's the what's your relationship in terms of improvising um, on set? Do you do you like to have everything in advance or do you is there room? Is there even any time for you to sort of mix things up and, and change it with the actors? Um, yeah, I mean, for those for those set pieces where it's um, it's going to be a combination of different cinematic elements like puppetry and it's underwater and it's, uh, you know, mm. it's going to have CG and we've built part of the boat and all that. That all has to be storyboarded. And, uh, you know, on the day, there may be there may be a better angle that you haven't thought of or whatever. And you're going to go with that. But it will pretty much be what it is. Right. Because that's um, that's that's your visual storytelling. That's going to be the impactful stuff. But in terms of, you know, the. Um, the true heart of the story, the emotional interactions between the characters. As a director, I, I think, as a director, my job is, it's, it's what we were talking about earlier, my job is to allow the actors to breathe life into those people and to make it as authentic and honest as they can. Mm. And sometimes they'll come at one of those scenes in a way that you haven't anticipated you know, you may have written it with a certain kind of tone of voice in your head and they'll come at it in a completely different way. And it's a bit like notes. I think you have to be incredibly open in that moment and go, this is how the actor sees it. So what does this mean for the broader story? Does it change the broader story if they if they inflect it, if they put this emotional spin on it? Mm. Um, and if it does, obviously, you have to kind of gently um, work with the actor to find something that, that does fit with the arc of the story. But if it doesn't change the arc of the story, then I think it's really important to listen to the actor and be open and be, you know, as open and creatively confident as you can to go, this is their emotional truth and this is their creative contribution. And if it is in sync with the rest of the story, just because I had a different idea in my head for three weeks doesn't mean my idea is better. And to be able to kind of make that judgment on the fly uh, and permit everybody to contribute uh, their own honest emotional contribution, you know, it empowers the actors and it makes them, really connect to the material and i think that's always valuable 
something something interesting that kind of made me think about that is, is about having your idea for three weeks someone else might come up with an idea um that they would never have come up with had they not seen your original idea and it may be different that's but it true may, it yeah, may have made that really connection true. yeah yeah and essentially we're going i know we had planned it here but actually look at this yeah. And that, that, those are the great moments, right? That's why we film that. Otherwise, you could just write it. It's <laughs> so true, yeah. It's so true. And it's, and it's the magical moments, isn't it? So sometimes they call them these fantastic mistakes, but I don't. I call them, we meant to do that. <laughs> we were, we were all right. finding it. Yeah, and, we were finding it together. And when the together. actors get together, right, and they're playing yes. off each other, Jesus, that's what you want. That's what you want. You want them to be alive in the moment. You don't want yeah. them just to be you know, following something that you thought brilliantly in your own study five weeks ago. But then it becomes staged. Yeah, it becomes staged and boring. And let's talk about your cast because you got, I love your cast. I think they're fantastic. You yeah, know, Connie oh, Nielsen, course. Hermione Caulfield, Grace Scott, Olwen Furrer, I hope I pronounced that right, Jack Hickey. You know, yeah. all, the whole cast were amazing. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed their performances and what they brought and everyone brought something else. Were, were the cast dependent on this film getting made in some way because you know you have got some names in here yes i would say absolutely yes okay um it was uh, it was an incredibly low budget project and i think the producers and the sales agent invested uh, in the script um and yeah. they were concerned that it would get uh, its head above the parapet and they were very very strong on the idea of having known actors they really wanted known actors who would elicit interest because so many films get made and it's so hard to um, to get attention. I was very keen that it be absolutely the right person um, because, as you know, there can be mad casting decisions. <laughs> yes. So it, yes. we did... We did um, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> it would have been I a different movie saying. with him. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I auditioned, not very many people actually, I auditioned about five people for Siobhan um, right. And those auditions were improvs. That's your lead role, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did hour-long improvs with, uh, I think it was either four or five different actors, um, to work with them, to have an idea of whether, you know, myself and the actor spoke the same language, because that's important, um, you know, that, that we're coming from a kind of similar conceptual place that we would be able to communicate well. And the only way you can really know that is by doing improv. Um, mm. And uh, Hermione was just absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary, uh, so yeah. subtle and incredible emotional. And um, and what I didn't know when I cast her is, you know, not only is she subtle and intelligent and a superb actor, but oh my god, the commitment that she has, the commitment she had to that character. She read all about um, neurodivergence and Asperger's syndrome, and she studied it, and she hung out with people who were willing to share their experience of the condition with her. And that was Hermione. You know, she she made that woman come alive in, a, in an incredibly truthful way. And you really feel, I think, or I did really feel her anxiety and her her pain around mm. the fact that she struggles to communicate well. And Connie Nielsen as well. I mean, because you putting piecing this film together, I imagine with with different uh, funding bodies, because there was a Swedish funding body in there as well as your Irish funding bodies. And you mentioned there, did you have to shoot some in Sweden to to connect all that up yes, to make sense? Hence, yeah. why you got yeah. Connie right um, okay. now. Connie is Danish, actually. Um, right. And uh, okay. so we've got Dugray, who plays this West of Ireland man, who's a native Irish speaker who peppers his uh, his language with with Irish terms married to this Danish woman 
Um, mm. and, and Connie herself actually does come from a little fishing village in Denmark. So she totally wow. got it. And she totally got the idea that this woman is Danish and she's married to this rural Irish guy and that's fine. Um, and she totally <laughs> got the idea that she had this idea going, so this woman's been in Ireland for 20 years. I'm going to give her some Irish vowel sounds. And I'm like, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Good luck. <laughs> we're both really yeah. amazing. I mean, they're both obviously world-class actors who've, who've worked. Absolutely. Good. And they were, A, I, I love them forever because they were both going, you're the best director we've ever worked with. I'm sure they say that to all girls. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll take it. Oh, Don't care. I'm taking it. Uh, yeah. And they also provided incredible leadership for for uh, the younger people uh, on uh, uh, in the ensemble. You know, they really, really did. They really were the leaders in that community. And um I know that some of the younger actors were coming to me going, God, I've learned so much just from watching their screen craft and watching mm. how they prepare for a take. Uh, so that was really interesting because it is an ensemble, right? There's very few cast members in there. Well, that's it. Mm. Yeah. And you're in a very small space. So let's talk yeah. about filming on a boat then with <laughs> a lot of people and doing it that way. And again, you said you, you, you were on, sometimes you're on dry land, you were in a studio, but a lot of the time I imagined you were on the boat. Yes, we were. How do you do that with a, a crew? Hard. What's it's your technique? Really hard. What was I thinking? I think is the first question. <laughs> it's because we had like zero money, so you know, making yes. it on a boat. I I do not know what I was thinking, but um, no, we we had this boat that uh, that belonged to the woman who had advised me on the script, so that was really helpful mm-hmm. because I knew the boat. Uh, right. Okay. And uh, and it's an unbelievably dangerous place to film because uh, you know more people <laughs> die as a result of working on trawlers in the UK and Ireland than any other job. God, it's dangerous. And there's like, you know, there are ropes moving, there's chains moving, the boat itself is rocking. Like there's, you know, there's um, these tiny little railings that you can just look over and fly off the edge. And then there's like (laughs) go down 20 feet into the fish. It's unbelievably dangerous. Did did anyone anyone suffer any accidents on yours or did you have a remarkably... Uh, We had had two, thankfully, really minor accidents and we were in incredibly lucky with the weather i wanted i didn't want that kind of cliche of you go out in a boat so there's a storm i wanted it to be really still because that's kind mm. of the mood of the story is that everything is really calm and it's quite yeah, and then it's about mm. the thing it's yeah. about that rather than it being about oh they're in shitty weather exactly. absolutely it's yeah. yeah that unknown and that you're sitting on top of something and you don't know what it is so it has to be really mm. still and we were totally blessed i remember we had a we had an initial meeting with the coast guard and we were filming in september and it was like uh, the cinematographer, the two producers, me and the line producer all standing and talking to the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard was going, this will never work. <laughs> there is no way that you were going to be able to do this. There's just no way. You're not going to get the weather. It's going to be too dangerous. You're never going to get away from shore. It's all going to be a disaster. And we were like, okay, thanks very much. We'll see you next thanks. Monday. <laughs> yeah, cheers for that. All the best. Come on, lads, let's go. You know what I mean? That's amazing. We were so lucky. But even at yeah, that, you were. You know, um, we were always guided by the skipper and there were two nights we had to shoot. Um, uh, we had, a, we had, I think we had four nights in total and two of the nights we had to cancel filming because it was just too rough. We just couldn't go out. Um, oh. And the skipper was like, I cannot guarantee uh, the safety of your equipment or your cast. And I was thinking, if I'm the woman who threw Connie Nielsen overboard in the Atlantic? It will never work yep. again. <laughs> yeah, you doubt that it would be done. It would be done. So, how, what You'd about be in the space? Orders. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
You'd be in a lifeboat without a paddle. Yeah, that <laughs> um, how did you film in the small spaces? Like you say, you spent quite a bit of time on the boat. So did you plan sort of where you wanted the camera to be and the cast? Or did, did you go through that in detail in terms of actually shooting on a boat? The first time I, I went onto the trawler and I was looking at it going, oh my God, this is so cinematic. And, you know, the, sur- mm. the, the decks are so cinematic and they're so beautiful. And it's, you know, it's rusted iron and old wood and it's all really um, beautiful visually. So this is going to be great. And I went down into the bowels of the boat where the um, where the berths are and where the engine room is. And it's absolutely gorgeous and entirely unfilmable because it's tiny. I thought <laughs> I can barely stand up. I'm five foot eight inches tall. I can barely stand up in here. There is no way we are going to get 80 hairy guys plus all of our equipment into this space. No way. And then have room to get far enough away from the actors to even see them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so we shot all of the stuff that's on deck. We shot live on the boat with a whole load of motion sickness tablets. I was like a pusher by the end of the week. The actress coming up to me going, mm, I've got any more of those. Um. I need more. I need more. <laughs> I'll take this. I bet I wouldn't be able to take it. And then oh, wow. uh, what we did was um, we rebuilt the interior of the boat on a set. And our <sighs> designer, a guy called Ray Ball, uh, measured the whole thing. And we scaled it up to, I think, 1.3 times its size. Uh, and we rebuilt it and it's the entire boat on a set. So it's the ladders, it's the ceilings, it's the engine, it's the whole works. Um, Mm. But the Ah. advantage of having it on a set is only the actors are on the boat. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, because once you go down into the bowels of the boat, there's no daylight. Like it's just, you you could be anywhere. So Mm. we just rebuilt it. Um, and the actors had the full run of the boat. So they were going up the ladders and down the ladders and into (laughs) it. So they had that sense of claustrophobia. But I was able to keep the 80 hairy guys off the boat and on set and then we had um we had certain parts of the boat that we could pull out so the lens of the camera is always inside the boat so you always have that feeling you're in the claustrophobic space but the body of the camera can be you know through the wall and and all the other equipment Mm. can be outside so that was how we solved that problem brilliant let's talk about i suppose the once you'd finished it and the editing process and getting it distributed and around because you've got the same distributor as i have for my ah, uh, king arthur movie from signature in in yes. the uk whom they set up this for us hello marek thank you very much for setting this up um <laughs> he is brilliant yeah yes absolutely they all are. love them um so yeah how did you get it to that stage to sort of the editing process and then delivery just before obviously all this happened that your release happened which is great i suppose just (laughs) um editing i don't know about you but i absolutely love editing i feel like editing is the thing i think it's kurosawa who said the only reason i ever film anything is so that i have something to edit (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting and uh, i really love editing i feel like editing is where you tell the story so that was incredibly exciting and um we we just hunkered down and edited for 12 weeks and i had a really brilliant guy called julian ulrichs um who uh he had worked with uh he'd done sing street hadn't he yeah thank you and begin again uh, yeah and uh, and he did his new uh uh, john carney's new drama for amazon as well uh brilliant editor and um and that was really fun uh it was really interesting and you know it's i i love to just sit in the edit suite with the editor and we're batting ideas back and forth and it's it's back to the writing process really you're kind of trying things and going what meaning does that conjure um Mm. because it's incredible you know it's incredible how you can transform meaning by changing small aspects of the cut by letting somebody look up or not look up or changing the order in which the scenes play out, you can 
amplify or neutralize meanings that are emerging. Um, so that was really, really great. And it was it was absolutely uh, we were on tenterhooks as well because we were still cutting when the deadline for the Toronto Film Festival was approaching. And right. I had a raw cut. Now, you've seen the movie, right? You know how much of it mm. is CG. So there's, yes. there's like oh, no. puppets that we always intended. The puppets are there to create because I didn't the stuff underwater and, and the, uh, the animal they meet is bioluminescent. Mm -hmm. So we built these puppets as as placeholders for the CG that would produce yeah. bioluminescence in the water. So you're getting the kind of chaos of that bioluminescent light reflected in the actors and in the boat and in the water so that we weren't be we wouldn't be trying to trying to reproduce that in CG because you can't. Yeah, so no. um so all that stuff looks quite raw, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's <laughs> pure CG is in. So it's just my drawings, my storyboards that are in. We're we're running this rough cut and then we have to show it to uh the director of the Toronto Film Festival. Like <laughs> screen oh and gosh. i was just sweating bullets going this is insane this is insane and there's like there's no sound mix it's just the raw avid sound oh. and myself and the editor oh, were sitting back i think yeah. neither of us had any fingernails by the end of the screen <laughs> <laughs> oh, and i have to say she to her great credit went i see what you're doing with this it's great we're going to put it on the opening night and uh, wow so, just wow. both brilliant and terrifying because we still had to finish the film. <laughs> of course, you're now going, oh, oh, that's amazing. But now we've actually got to deliver and opening night. And <gasps> yeah, so wow. that was um, that was pretty hardcore. And then, uh, as you say, it was, you know, it was a kind of patchwork co-production. So it was an Irish. Uh, it was financed primarily by Screen Ireland and then also by Scottish Screen and by uh, Film Ifest and by the Swedish Film Institute and by uh, the um, tax credit system in uh, Wallonia in Belgium. So all of those people wow. have an input. So the sound post all happened in Brussels. Uh, and the guy okay. who was doing the sound post, who did the sound, he did the Foley and the sound design, or he did the Foley and the sound mix, uh, was an mm, absolutely lovely yeah. guy and really talented guy who spoke almost no English. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, trying to communicate. Yeah, my school good luck. <laughs> and Google Translate. C'est le nuance. C'est le nuance qui se Mad, mad, everything mad. So that was pretty challenging. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, wow. It's almost like trying to finish something up in the coronavirus now it's like doing that by zoom which i had to do for, for king arthur oh my oh, gosh oh, i don't envy you that i'm sure that was absolutely and then you're listening to the sound yeah. on your little speakers oh, yeah. on your mac my terrible no, yeah, sounds, sounds great yeah i'm like I've no idea. gosh i know you're like oh my word good luck so so you managed to do all that you got that done like say god you with all these different countries pulling everything together which must have been you know for you you're like well it doesn't matter i'm getting my movie made so it's like great well, however you do it Let's get it done. Um, and then from Toronto, did that? Is that where it most mainly got picked up by uh, your district? Yeah, we were very lucky. Um, it was uh, it, it did very well at Toronto, which was terrific. I remember being in the back of a limousine in Toronto, uh, being nice, brought from one interview way. to another. We had an amazing um, press response to the film, um, and uh, we were kind of being zipped from place to place to place, which was really exciting. Yeah. I hadn't really anticipated that that was going to happen. And I remember Connie Nielsen really kindly turning around to me in the limousine going 
remember this because this never happens. It never happens. Wow. She said, this is Toronto. They're not being nice to you. They're, they're doing this because they're interested in the film. And that was really thrilling. And to have her who had been there with Gladiator mm. and, and Wonder Woman and big studio films, she went, the only time this happens is with studio films. This never happens to indie films. So that was really lovely and, and really kind of her, you know, to, to imagine being in my shoes in that moment and to be kind enough to go, just remember this. This is really good. That is ace. So that was thrilling. Yeah, that must have been. That must have been. So, yeah, and then you get distributed all around the world and Epic Pictures picked it up um, and, like I say, Signature. Uh, Epic were, had invested in it uh, at Scripps, which was amazing. Um, Patrick Avalt at Epic. Yes. Uh, I met him in L.A. and pitched the story to him and... Uh, and did that thing that I just talked to you about because Epic do a lot of horror films. And I went, mm-hmm. okay, this is not really a proper horror film. And if, you, if you're looking for jump scares, don't invest because I'm not going to give you that. And I don't want you to be disappointed. Um, and he was great. He went, no, no, I'm up for it. Let's do it. Uh, which great. was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and he was really, really, really supportive all the way through. And he gave really good notes on the cut actually as well. He was a great guy. Um, and, uh, and, and Screen Ireland also gave really good notes on the cut and really came in uh, behind it and were incredibly supportive uh, while I was editing so that was all hugely hugely helpful and then um, yeah we were sold out of Toronto and then the press screening sold out and they had to put on um, the the buyer screening sold out and they had to put on another buyer screening which was great Yeah. so we had multiple buyers which was super exciting totally because then you can do a bidding war and you're like yeah go on more money I don't know check more in it so, yeah. Um, yeah so then Gunpowder and Sky came on board for uh, for the US release and uh, and they've been amazing they've been absolutely amazing and um, and I recommend people to uh, to work with them if they want to because uh, they've been so supportive and Signature in the UK equally um, have been really supportive and it's sold all over the world oh, which is really exciting it really so, is and it is available now right everyone can watch it pretty much everywhere in the world right now it is available to buy or rent anywhere you wish from the Sky Store iTunes Amazon Virgin Movies Google Play Microsoft <laughs> Store Rakuten or Volta I love that you remembered all those I could never do it and even though I'm doing this and I should have it written in front of me and go you can watch yes, my film here, but I don't I yeah. forget it's so hard to know and you did that was so cool that was really cool <laughs> I love it. Um, listen, Sea Fever is amazing. It's a really good film. If you haven't seen it yet, do go see it. If you have seen it, write a brilliant review because it really does make a difference as well. Um, yes, it yes. Yeah. Also, thoughtful... makers out there, we do need to support each other. Write the review, write a supportive review. If you don't like it, say nothing. If you exactly. do like it, write a, support, a supportive review. It's so hard being an indie filmmaker. We need each other. Absolutely agree to that. Dom? I was just going to say it's a, very, it's a very thoughtful film and it's extremely relevant at the moment. So go and watch it. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so where can people find you on, on the socials? Because people love to support, like I say, from this podcast and they will follow you. Where can they find you on your Twitter, on your Facebook, on your your lovely website? I'm, I'm, I have a website, uh, but I'm also on Twitter, which is probably the best way. Yep. So I'm uh, at Nyasa Hardiman, N-E-A-S-A-H-A-R-D-I-M-A-N there we go absolutely amazing do go follow her and set a little tweet out to her saying thank you i listened to you you're amazing you gave such great advice which you have done honestly i really appreciate it today really appreciate your time thank you so much thank, thank you. you that was such a pleasure so lovely to talk to other filmmakers right yeah absolutely i think this is one one of the reasons we did this we'd like to do this dom right it's because we get to talk to filmmakers because yeah. uh, we make films so we understand what you're going through and absolutely i think it helps you Sh- sharing pain as well pain. as well as insight <laughs> so true we definitely need that support group. <laughs> Sharing yeah. the pain of filming. Filmmaker support group. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Don, where can people follow you? 
direct Dom Lenoir, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. There you go. And you can follow me at Giles Alderson or you can follow the podcast at Filmmakers Pod. And if you do want to get in touch or you want to be on the podcast, if you've made a feature, uh, then do get in touch at thefilmmakerspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, we have a new email. Um, This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. So basically, uh, like Niasa says, you can go out and make your film. You can make it happen. Think about your script. Think about everything in the whole process and storyboard and prep as much as you can. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down we will see you all next tuesday take care stay well and safe uh, and do whatever you can to go make your film bye-bye guys take care bye bye-bye thank you (laughs) bye thanks